Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 11, through the end of the chapter. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Let's pray yet again. Father, we are prone to overestimate our abilities constantly. We think we are so much greater than we are. And too often we come to your word assuming that we'll be fine. We can understand it and apply it just fine. And that's not right. We need the work of your Holy Spirit in our minds and in our hearts to illumine to change and transform, to give truth and life. We ask for His work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What's the big deal? I mean, what's the big deal? That's a question that we ask all of the time. What's the big deal with such and such, right? If you actually Google it and leave your search box blank, it it turns up some pretty hysterical ones, right? I guess Google realizes where I am. The the first one that pops up is, what's the deal with uh, Jeremy Lin's haircut? The guy who plays for the Hornets who wears the most goofy hairstyle in the history of goofy hairstyles. What's the big deal? And that question has been asked most often, I would say, about Christianity. What's the big deal with Christianity? I mean, why do we do what we do? Why are we here when it's, you know, snowy outside? Why are we not at home enjoying um, the milk and bread and sugar that we ran to the store to purchase? Uh, why, why? What is the big deal with what we're doing? 
this week, that is put a little bit more in perspective because many of us, our lives are, are I would say, easy. I mean, uh, they hurt, they're hard, they're difficult, but they're easy in so many ways by comparison. Uh, this week, while I was in Louisville, I made a friend. And that's a special thing to make a friend, much less a friend that you assume will probably be around for quite a while. And I did make one of those. He's a uh, 26-year-old uh, young man. He lives in Toronto now, but he's uh, originally from China. Uh, English is his second language. He's brilliant. He's in the Ph.D. program. He is substantially more intelligent than I am. But the interesting thing is that he is pursuing a Ph.D. in, um, I think it's in New Testament. Uh, But his father works in the Chinese government. Full bore, card-carrying communist. I'm talking bust of Chairman Mao on the, the dashboard in the car and in the living room at home. You see, that, that, that's a question that is absolutely the essence of what his life is. To be able to answer the question, what is the big deal about Christianity? None of his family knows Christ. None of them. And every time he goes home and interacts with his parents, he has to engage this dialogue to try to provide answers in some sense for what makes this real and special. A little different than our experience this week, wasn't it? That's his life. It's what he does regularly, having to provide answers. And it's interesting, this is a passage where we would see those answers presented, though maybe not um, quite as easy to understand as in other parts of the Scriptures, right? This is a passage that we all probably understood exactly what was taking place, but go, you know, I really don't know how to apply this one to my life. Right? I could understand what's going on here, but I don't really know how to apply this to my life. So God willing, over the next handful of moments, and by that I mean 40 minutes, we will labor to see God's truth and bring it home. Why should we pay attention to the gospel that you delivered? That's actually the question that the Galatian church is asking Paul. Honestly, why, why should we pay attention? Who cares what you're talking about? You're a preacher, you're gone, we got new preachers in. Who cares what you said? Who cares, who cares, who cares? Why should we pay attention to the gospel that you delivered? And in order to, to kind of back up and, and answer this correctly, we have to look kind of short and sweet. What is the gospel? When the answer is, well, it's, it's truth. And it's a very special and specific set of truth which tells the redeeming work, the story of the Lord Jesus. How people, you and me, everyone else, were lost in sin. And by that I mean broken, and broken in a way that is deep and rich and real. Broken to the depths of our being, broken in ways that we don't even understand. A brokenness that we look at kind of like the the tip of an iceberg that's humongous underneath. And in the midst of that brokenness, God himself, the Lord Christ, stepped into, second person of the Trinity, stepped into time and space, put on flesh, became a man, lived a righteous life, died, was raised from the dead, ascended into glory, and then, and this is the key, promised that redeeming work to anyone that wanted it. Now, it was on his own terms that promise was given. Right now, his promise was, I will give you not just a free lunch, I will give you free salvation. And the terms of the deal are, 
that it has to be received freely. By faith. Faith alone. Grace alone. In fact, actually sets it up so much that that's really the heart of the issue of what the Galatian church is struggling with is to try to understand and believe that the gospel is grace plus nothing. Because what they're trying to do is they're trying to take this gospel, this redeeming story of the Lord, and add things to it. They'll have grace plus, well, we'll say say Judaism. Or grace plus circumcision, or grace plus something. And the point that Paul is making throughout this letter is grace plus something else is nothing. It's nothing at all. It's certainly not the gospel. And so he's here answering this question, what is the big deal? What is the deal with the gospel? Why is this story, this truth, this promise of redemption so incredibly important? Well, the first part is, it, these are all going to kind of deal with the essence, what, what, what makes the gospel the gospel. The first thing you're going to see in verse 11 and 12 here is that the gospel is special. We should pay attention to it. We should listen to it. We believe it. Because it comes from God himself. Right? Look at what he says. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Now, that would be a big deal because, remember, at the time, they don't have the New Testament. Right, So anytime a preacher comes into this church or comes in and you get to listen to them, you have a standard by which to evaluate them, and you should every time. Right, Every time I preach, you should be measuring what I say to this book. They don't have that yet. Right, This is probably the first book written in the entire New Testament. And so when they hear the truth of Jesus, they're having to hear it from a man and from a man only. And that is seriously difficult. Because the content of that sermon, the content of who Jesus is, is so intimately connected with the character of that man, and that is incredibly difficult for them to work through. But here, Paul is explaining to them that the real issue at stake is that the gospel isn't his. Now, they heard it from him, and he taught it to them, and they believed it through him, but it's not his. It doesn't belong to him. It comes from God himself. And look at what he says, 12. I did not receive it from any man. He didn't learn it by another preacher, right? He didn't stutter, study under somebody to learn the gospel. No, instead, I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. All right? Referring back to his conversion and then what follows where he is taught by the Lord Christ himself. That this gospel doesn't originate in the church, It doesn't originate with Paul. It doesn't originate in the Gospels. It originates with God himself. It comes from him to us. And you say, well, okay, I mean, that's a kind of philosophical point. Who cares? I mean, who cares that it comes from God? I don't really care where it came from. I I care that I believe it and that it's true. Why would that matter? Well, that, that is actually the nature of it. How do you know the gospel is true? I mean, Paul later says in another book that if it's not true, we're the ones to be pitied above all other people. How do we know that it's true? Well, one is because it's coming from the Lord. It's a direct outflow of his character. The Lord does not lie. 
So we're able to trust in his promises, to build our entire life, to build our psyche, to build our personality around the truth of God's promises. It's interesting to see how our culture has kind of rejected that concept, right? Right now, all of those, the parenting books that you read when you first have children and realize they're garbage and then throw them away and recycle them and do other things with them, uh, the, the model in America today is that we want to build our child's brain around the fact that they are loved by someone and then really morph that into they're loved by themselves, <laughs> Right? And that's what makes people people is that someone loves them. You know, the old song, you're nobody till somebody loves you. Uh, or then even the self-esteem movement, which is I love myself, so I'm important. And to see how that flies in the face of what's going on here, to say that Lord's saying, no, look, it's not rooted in people. It's not rooted, your identity is not rooted, it's rooted in me. This whole story of who Christians are, it's from heaven, it's not simply from here. We trust in him. It shapes us and how we think and how we feel and how we act. And I would contend one specific thing for us to consider is that if the gospel is indeed God's gospel, if it is indeed from God himself, as Paul says it is, it does not give us authority to tinker with it. Right? Meaning, it demands submission. If it's truth from the Lord himself, we're not allowed to modify it. We're not allowed to cut out the inconvenient parts. Right? I mean, let's be honest. There are parts of the scriptures that I would find tremendously inconvenient. I mean, my flesh finds them particularly inconvenient because it tells me my flesh is wrong. Right? There are things that I want to do that the scripture says no. And while I would love to be like, well, it was in a different day, you know, cultures change. We are so much more enlightened now. I mean, Paul, what did Paul know? We don't have that authority. Now, can we do that with a human message? Yeah, absolutely, right? I could, I could write a letter out to the congregation. It could be a cruddy letter, and you guys could destroy my grammar and fix it and make it right. And that would be absolutely your prerogative, because I, in essence, belong to you. We don't get to do that with God's letter. We don't get to do that with God's truth. We don't get to place ourselves over it. We must submit under it. We must listen. We must obey. We must believe. We cannot change the truth of the gospel and I would contend, brothers and sisters, when if the Lord Jesus doesn't come back and the history books are written, the great legacy the American church is going to leave for the world church, our note, our paragraph in the church history books will be, they tinkered with the gospel. That's what we do. You see, the doesn't stop simply with this is the nature it comes from the Lord, but there's, there's actually benefits connected to it. So there's motivation for why we should do it, right? First, the gospel comes from God himself. Secondly, the gospel is transformative for man. It changes people, right? Paul continues here in his defense of the gospel and starts with, okay, it came from the Lord himself, verse 11 and 12, then 13 and 14, 15, 16. You're going to see his next point here. He goes into personal explanation. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and continues on his story. 
And this is where most of us would go when we're reading this in our private reading, go, well, I understand the story. I remember it, right? Paul was a bad dude. Well, not really. I mean, we would consider him politically and morally conservative, right? He, he would be Republican of all Republicans, in a sense, in our day today. He would have been the righteous, the good guy. You wouldn't have caught him going out and doing sleazy things. You wouldn't have caught him, you know, uh, misbehaving in any way. He was a Jew among Jews. So much so that he was persecuting the Christians, and that was the very problem itself. Destroying the church. He's a murderer, if not literally, then by being an accomplice. He is all kinds of wrong for all kinds of the wrong reasons. And he begins to offer this illustration of how powerful the truth of the gospel is. He says, look at me. I was the most moral of men, Jew amongst Jews, righteous amongst righteous, but at the same time I was persecuting the Lord's people. I was doing evil deeds so that at the same time he's advancing in education, he's advancing in career, he's advancing in power and advancing in rank, but doing heinous things against the Lord. But what happens? Verse 15 and 16, he's transformed, he's changed. I mean, radically, spectacularly changed. To a point where it would have been in many ways for the early church quite offensive. To think that this guy can be different. Right? My favorite illustration of this one, kind of modern, but it's, I guess, not really up to date anymore, is Jeffrey Dahmer. Right? Jeffrey Dahmer, you remember the story for those that are a little bit older, was one of the most hated men in America. And what he did was heinous beyond all belief. And yet in prison, I think, was genuinely converted, genuinely Uh, And then ultimately got killed for his faith, as I understand it, in prison. Because he began to share his faith with his uh, uh, cellmates and fellow prisoners. And they refused to think that a man that bad could be changed by something so good. And it cost him his life. It's interesting to think that this man who we in our culture used to be a byword for evil has died a martyr's death. He's one of the martyrs, as best we understand. Again, I I don't know his heart. I don't know all the stories. I wasn't in prison when that happened. Um, But as best we can tell, he died a martyr's death. He's one of those in Revelation that receives all this glory and honor and praise. Because the truth of the Scriptures is that amazing. That when we take this gospel which has been delivered from God and we do not monkey with it, we do not tinker with it, we do not change it or seek to contort it, when we submit ourselves to it, we can say, look, life becomes different. I was this way, but now I'm not. It's fun talking with my Chinese-Canadian friend this last week. Um, That's the story he tells his dad. Dad, look at your life. It is no different. And look at mine. And it is. Look at what you believe and it offers you no hope. And look at my life. And tell me I'm the same man that left home 10 years ago. You evaluate, Dad. You look at the lives. You look at the comparison. You tell me which you think is best. His dad does not have a good answer to that one. 
He really doesn't. It's interesting that that's forcing this kind of crisis of belief for his father as he has no answer for the transformative nature of the gospel. Next, though, it, it, all right, so from the Lord, it is this transformational thing, but it also is the definitive, it's the essence, the nature of who God's people are, what the church is. And this is the fun part here. Paul continues his story in verses 17 through really kind of 23. And he says, look, when I got converted and the Lord gave me this message to preach, I didn't immediately go to the General Assembly or the Presbytery, right? I I didn't immediately go to Jerusalem and meet with everybody. Instead, I went south. And I labored there for three years. I preached, I ministered, I studied, I grew. I did all of that independently of them. I took the message of the truth of God and I proclaimed it all over the south. But after three years, I went up and I met the home base, right? Spent time with Peter, spent time with James. Um, James is the head of the Jerusalem church at the time. He's brother of Jesus converted after the resurrection. Uh, Spent time with them. And the interesting thing is when he gets there, their message is identical. They haven't communicated, right? It's not like he, again, remember this is significant. He spent three years of his ministry completely separated, having no scriptures to go by yet except Old Testament, not having New Testament scriptures, only having the specifically clear revealed message of the Lord. And then when they finally do join together, what do they find? It's the same story. And this is probably the most complicated point he makes in this entire passage. But it's to highlight the fact that the church, no matter where it is, who it is, how they look, how they act, how they smell, no matter, they all believe the same gospel. He's highlighting that fact. We started apart, then we joined together, and the truth never changed. It was the same from the very beginning. So ministering privately, ministering with them, with their approval or not, it is the same truth of God. It is the essence of the church. Right? It's the center of the church. It's the essence. It, it, what, it's what makes church church, right? So it makes us different than like some uh, great country club or a, a you know, social gathering or a, a you know, neat little group of people or a book club, right? We're not a really, you know incredibly committed book club that we're not that we have as our core the gospel itself and we think about this we can you know use an illustration of this right? what makes a chair a chair we've talked about this in sunday school right in order for a chair to be a chair you kind of have to have a couple of things or it stops to be a chair right you have to have a seat right you take away the seat it's not a chair anymore is it it's a post or a couple of posts. It's not very common. It has to have a back, because if you take away the back, it becomes a stool, right? It's the difference between a stool and a chair. And it has to have some sort of legs or something. Otherwise, it's like a husband pillow that you sit on the floor. Right? A chair gets you up off. There's certain things that make a chair a chair. The thing that makes the church the church is the gospel. You take that away... We stop being the church. Right? That's an important note to make. You take the gospel away and the church stops being the church. 
Now, this is stats probably 10 years old by now, but actually I've been here a couple of years. It's probably 15 years old. Polls go around and they ask Christians all kinds of things in America, and it's really interesting. The overwhelming majority of American Christians, and I'm talking like 80%, scary high number, profess that the heart of what the church is and what the message of the church is, is that if you believe in God, he will make you financially rich. That's what American Christians, on average, hold is the heart of the gospel. That if you trust in the Lord, he will make you rich. Not rich in good works, not rich in suffering, not rich in righteousness, financially. And if we're going to think about this, we would have to say, you know what, that's, that's actually the heart of what kind of Paul is striking at, right? The uh, grace plus something else is no longer gospel. Well, that's grace plus financial riches. And if we're going to follow here to say that this is the essence of the church, we'd have to look at our country and say, oh dear, wouldn't we? Oh dear. We're so many that profess his name have left his name. I'd love to say I was making this up. Right? It would make me happy to be like, well, I'm just talking crazy. Right? Just ignore me, marginalize me, stop listening, do your shopping list in your head, you know, prepare for this afternoon, whatever. Just stop listening. I would love to tell you I'm making that up. It's, not, it's actually not the truth, though. Right? You can look through really all of Reformation history, and we have, in Reformation history, held this same truth, and we've packaged it in different kind of concepts, but it's been there. Right? The Belgic Confession said there are three things that show the church. The faithful preaching of the gospel, the faithful administration of the sacraments, again, in light of the gospel, and the faithful practice of church discipline, again, to highlight the gospel. Those three things. Now, that's Belgic Confession, so, okay, we could say, well, that's not entirely the, you know, Calvinist. Under, okay, fine, Calvin said there were two. The faithful preaching of the gospel and the faithful administration of the sacraments, and he included discipline underneath that faithful administration of the sacraments. This is the DNA of what it means to be a Protestant, what it means to be a Christian, is to say that if we lose the gospel, we have lost it all. I would make maybe one quick kind of application on this and then move to the final point. First is to think about, well, all right, we recognize as we look around in the American church and we would say the American church is not well, right? Now, the church is doing well. It's capital C church is doing fantastically, right? It's exploding in China. It's exploding in South America. It's exploding in Africa and other places. It's just blowing up. There's Christians. They can't pastor them fast enough in other parts of the world. We're struggling here. But while we would like to point the finger out and to say, well, look at how those bad, bad people out there are doing, it is always appropriate and excellent for us to point the finger in, right? And to consider our own hearts and to look at our own selves in light of this. And I would just simply say this. If the world, the flesh, and the devil hate the gospel so much, and the world and the devil are the same for everybody else, and your flesh is no different, why would that not also be a temptation in your own heart? To say, how in my own heart... Am I being tempted to do that very same thing? To change the gospel? 
to, to reshape it a little bit, to try to undercut grace, to add things in, to make this spiritual equation different than what the Bible says. What values are we adding in? What actions are we adding in? And again, changing the nature of our faith. Why is this all a big deal, honestly? Well, one, it's from God. Two, is it's transforming. Three, it's the very essence of who we are as Christians. But the, the key is at the very end. Right, look at that last verse. And they glorified God because of me. The whole point of this activity, sadly, isn't to change you. Right? The heart of the gospel is not about making you get out of hell. Right? It's not, you know, you get out of jail free card and monopoly. Oh, I don't have to get stuck. Yay. The heart of what the scriptures are about, the heart of the gospel itself, the heart of the work of Christ is not all about you. <laughs> it's about glorifying the Father. There's a very popular song a number of years ago that used to set my blood boiling above all above all powers, above all blah, 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 blah. And then it gets to the end of the pinnacle of the song. Above all, Jesus thought of me. No, he didn't. I hate to break it to you. Michael is not the center of all Christianity and neither are you. The center point of all Christianity that we might glorify God together. You see, brothers and sisters, uh, our temptation is uh, certainly because of our flesh and the world and the devil is to, to change any of these things. I mean, the assault does not stop. It's constantly pushing on one of these to try to, to, to move us in one direction or the other, constantly to doubt the truth of the gospel coming from God. Right? We've seen that in liberal theology to say, well, surely it's not true. Paul was a wacko or all kinds of other things. Jesus didn't actually exist. Liberal theology out the ears, right? I mean, I have to read some of that mess for school. It's awful, unpleasant, terrible. But it's the reality of the American church. To doubt the transformative nature for man, to say, well, you know what, if I just try hard enough, I'll be fine. I mean, why do I need the Holy Spirit? (laughs) I mean, I'm pretty self-disciplined. I'll do all right. To recognize that we are constantly being tempted, being pulled, being prodded, being pushed to try to sneak glory to self. To turn it all about me. To point the spotlight on Michael and to make me be the center point of my world. Why is this a big deal? Well, God said it. He uses it to change his people. He defines the church. It brings him glory. And when we change that, we change it all. I would challenge you with one quick challenge, one simple challenge. That it might be in your brain this week, this afternoon, this evening, as you go out and about to think about, how am I being tempted? How am I being seduced by the evil one? How am I giving in and shaping my world to be all about me? Where am I doing that? How am I guilty? Where am I turning the spotlight on this as opposed to him? Where am I seeking to be the big deal 
instead of the Lord himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for easy passages. We thank you for complicated passages. We thank you for passages that are delightful to the soul. They give us nourishment and strength. They lift us up like eagle's wings. We thank you for passages like this that are not quite designed for that. That are designed to poke and prod in our heart, to highlight the evil and the darkened parts that they might be healed. Just as when we go to the doctor and they have the contrast MRIs or whatever to see where the cancer is so we can get chemo and radiation to the right place. Lord, we ask that your word would continue to shine in our hearts by the work of the Holy Spirit, that you would convict us of sin. That as we go from this place, we would think about how we live and how we eat and how we talk to one another and how we sleep and how we sing and what entertainments we enjoy and how we are making our lives all about me. Forgive us. In Jesus' name, we ask that you would forgive us for our sin. Sanctify us, we pray, that we might be able to say with Paul, look at, look at, we get to give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.